0: Change happens. How we respond to change can make or break us and our careers. Join us for an intimate insight into how influential and authentic people lead through change. The good, the bad and everything in between. Because whether we like it or not, change happens.
1: Hi, I'm Genomic Master, and welcome to the Change Happens podcast. Conversations with influential leaders on leading through change and the lessons learned along the way. Today, I'm joined by Hugh van Carmenberg, a mental health advocate and co-founder of The Resilience Project, a program that teaches positive mental health strategies that has, to date, impacted more than a thousand schools and a million Australians. He's been a keynote speaker for more than 500 corporates and has worked with National Rugby League clubs, AFL clubs, state cricket teams, and Netball Australia. He also individually mentors athletes across a range of codes, and has developed comprehensive programs for many workplaces. An educator for more than 17 years, Hugh practices gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, or GEM, to create a happy, fulfilling experience. He's also an author of The Resilience Project and a co-host of the podcast, The Imperfects. In the digital age and clearly also in this time of lockdowns and homeschooling, cognitive overload, loneliness, boredom are real threats to the mental health of children, youth, employees and quite frankly, everyone around. Now with that context in mind, we will explore what insights Hugh has into managing and leading through these times, particularly with an emphasis on mental health. Hugh, welcome. I
0: think it's close to the best introduction I've ever had. That is very, very thorough. And you've got my name right, which most people don't get. So.
1: Yes. Well, I might just end this here on that high. Yeah. <laughs> we're done.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. That was great. <laughs> thanks, Janelle.
1: <laughs> at the risk of starting with what is always, well, not always, but at these particular times quite a loaded question, I, I will start with how are you? Given you're in Melbourne and I'm in Sydney and we're both in lockdown again, you more so than me, but still, ha- how are you? Uh
0: it's a very, very interesting question because I think I'll, the caveat I'll put in that question is that my son woke up at one in the morning with croup last night. And anyone I don't who's know. had a child with croup before, I have. It, um, oh, you've been through it, have you? I have, yep. Oh, you actually think they're dying. Like it's, yeah, it's it really is the,
1: scary and confronting.
0: He gets it about probably twice a year and he's four. So I was falling asleep at 10.30 and I heard him do this cough because he's a bit unwell. And I went, oh, no, that's mm. really croupy. So I just lay there just waiting for it. Mm-hmm. So I lay there and I lay there. Sure enough, 1 a.m. it started. So I went and grabbed him and it was really quite bad. And we went downstairs on the couch. We're trying to watch Fireman Sam come down. But anyway, the the, problem, the, the caveat I'm putting in this chat is that I didn't get back to sleep till a quarter to five in the morning. And then my daughter was up at 6.30. So the answer oh. to your question is, I feel so exhausted, but generally speaking, though, considering we're in lockdown in Melbourne for the fifth time, I'm feeling remarkably good.
1: I am incredibly grateful for your time. Uh, and I will say it's interesting too, when you think about that stuff is always hard. Uh, and those early years in particular are super difficult. But now I can't imagine the, the additional load of questioning you've got to go through. Like he's got a cough. Could that be something else? Do I need to go to the hospital? What's the implications? Will we have a COVID test? you know, now there's even more layers of questions and implications and even language that we apply to yeah. our thoughts and decision trees around these things.
0: Totally. And I, he's a, I've hes spoken about this a little bit before. I won't go into the details too much, but he's an anxious kid. He's four and he's, he's very, yeah. he, he's really anxious and, he, and he's finding the world very confusing at the moment, as I think a lot of us are. But, you know, when I compare him to his friends who are the same age, he's finding it particularly challenging. It's um, trying to explain the world to young kids at the moment. I'm finding it really frightening because, you know, you watch the news right now and it's um, it's terrifying. Like if you, if you spend too much time watching the news. Which yeah, I try before, not to
1: actually because of yeah. that. The, it's it, it gets you down.
0: Anyway, I'm sounding very dramatic. I'm just very tired. <laughs> that's no, the you are to tired. No,
1: that's okay. <laughs> and, and actually it sort of poses a question for me in itself when I think about the space that you work in. And, you know, you're teaching other people about happiness and resilience, all of which we'll get into. But you, on a personal note, as someone who is in Melbourne, you know, facing what have arguably been the harshest, you know, lockdown restrictions in the world, um, you've got young kids, situation like what you've just talked about. What have you learnt about yourself in mm. managing resilience? And maybe has it evolved the narrative that you've had in your teachings or your insights around it as you've been navigating such tough conditions in a space where you're advising others?
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic question because I was discussing this yesterday, only yesterday afternoon with my psychologist, but I think it's an important conversation for me to put out there because we don't talk about this enough. But I have felt enormous pressure and I think people in corporate world feel this pressure to be okay all the time, like to be seen, to be totally on top of everything. And the irony there is that we're not a lot of the time. And the irony of that is that pretending that you're okay and not being honest with how you're traveling often leads you to being even more not okay. Mm. I, I, so with my psychologist yesterday, she she said, first question, she said, how do I find you today? How, how are you going? And I said, do you know what? I'm, I'm going amazingly well. And then I talked to her through the last couple of months of my life. I haven't chatted to her for a while. And, and it involved saying to the CEO of the Resilience Project, a bit over a month ago, saying to him, mate, I'm not okay at the moment. I'm really battling with with work-life balance with um burnout professionally with mm. and i'm feeling pressure that i have to be okay because i'm the resilience guy so if i'm not okay does that mean that you know i'm just a fraud and, and um and and then chatting to my saying to my wife she said to me uh you're okay what's going on usually i'm fine why why Why? what's wrong and get a little bit shitty at that question but i said yeah. no, i don't think i am okay at the moment i'm I'm so burnt out at work and I'm meant to recover at home, but I actually find work, a home more difficult than work at the moment because there's a one-and-a-half-year-old who doesn't sleep. There's a four-and-a-half-year-old who's having a lot of issues and um, I don't know when I, I can't recover anywhere. I'm exhausted emotionally. I'm, I'm exhausted mentally. and I, So I admitted that to two people who I really care about, who I've pretended to be okay in front of for a long time because I felt like they needed me to be okay. And I sit here now a month later and I am in such a good place right now. And my psychologist said, you're okay now because you told people that you weren't okay a month ago. She said, if you'd kept pretending that you're okay, I can't even begin to imagine what state you would be in right now. How so, did
1: it feel for you when you said those words to you out loud, to your wife and to your psychologist? How did it feel at the time?
0: Um, I, I love both of them dearly in very different ways, obviously. <laughs> <Very> different ways. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: uh, really quickly then our ceo i've known him for a long time and i the resilience project is is this i mean i get a lot of credit for it that is martin our other presenter but it's successful in my most part because of him he's an extraordinary individual but he went straight to operation mode he was like okay so we need to we need to shift this we need to move this we need to cancel that we can't cancel that we're gonna and i was at the time I felt like, oh gosh. But then I went home and told Penny and she she said, Okay, so I need to do I need to do this, I need to fix that, I need to do this, um, I need to and neither of them really sat in that emotion with me. I think it was a bit confronting to have me saying I'm not okay, because I've never said that before. Mm-hmm. And they were both so desperate to help that they went straight to, okay, let's let's problem solve. And funnily enough, we interviewed Dr. Billy Garvey, a pediatrician, on our podcast. Um last week and he was talking about how you deal with a child who's got a problem and he said the first thing you do is you validate, you sit in the emotion with them and you validate it. Um, Then you identify that as an opportunity. Then you give them some space and then later you problem solve. And I was listening thinking that's not just kids, that's us as adults as well. So So you
1: validate.
0: Yeah, so you validate it. You say "I, I, I can see you feeling this and I understand why you'd feel like that. That makes sense to me. And then in your head you think here's an opportunity for us to grow our relationship, or to us to 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 grow this situation or this team or whatever you're going through, and then you give a little bit of space, you don't try and problem solve straight away, and then you come back to it, you know, a day or two later, and you say, okay, how can we, what can we do here? And it's funny, Dr. Billy Garvey, this pediatrician, said, as parents, we just want our kids' lives to be easier. So what we do is we, our kid will say, I didn't get picked in the soccer team, and we say, that's okay, that means you can play mm-hmm. football. You love football, mm-hmm. that'll be good. But I experienced that firsthand with this. With my wife, who who, finally who did it the other way, you know, the next day she said, "Oh, I I totally understand why you feel like that. That must be, you know, you've been doing this for ten years nonstop. You haven't taken a breath in ten years." And then the CEO Ben, I chatted to him two days after that. He said to me, "Mate, I'm really worried about you. I, I get why you feel like that." And so the both of them did it sort of in reverse, and it was funny having lived it. I was like, yeah. I mean, gosh, don't get me wrong. I'm not having a go at either of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're two of the most special people in my life. But both of them went, solved the problem first. So to answer your question, how did I feel? I felt much better the second time we chatted when they just validated how I was feeling. That's all I needed. That's, that's what I really needed. And the problem-solving part, yeah, that was going to be part of it. But I didn't need it straight away. I just needed to be validated for the way I was feeling. Because I felt really vulnerable when I told them I wasn't going okay. And when you're feeling, when you let someone know you're, you're not going okay, like, I don't want to sound like I'm being dramatic. I think most of us at the moment are not really on, I mean, if you're in Sydney or Melbourne right now, there are very few people who could honestly say, yeah, I'm totally fine, life's great, I, I think. It, maybe it's not as hard for you, but I saw a Batuta Advocate did a post the other day saying, made me laugh a lot. It said, um, it adverted commas, it said, um, I'm actually finding this lockdown pretty great. Said man living in Bondi with view of the ocean. <laughs> I think that those sort of us who are not, sitting in an apartment in Bondi over the view of the ocean. I think life is tough and Mm -hmm. I think we've got to be more honest about that because because of that. This is what happens when you say you're not okay. You have this – when you actually say it out loud, this is what happened to me anyway. And I think what the research says, the research says you – you have this new humility about you, like you're really humble and that I don't have the answers. And then you have this curiosity you take, o- take over, which is, okay, what do I need to do here so I can start to get better or feel better? And and you, you come at that with a very humble approach, like I don't have the answers. I mean, my psychologist said to me yesterday, she said, I know you feel pressure to be okay as a resilience guy, but she said this is the most resilient I've ever seen you in two yeah. years. You, you are showing up today living and breathing resilience because you've said you're not okay and you're trying to – you're curious as to what you can do to, to, to get better. She said that's that's more resilient than putting on a performance around gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, in, in my opinion, which I, I thought was really I think that's
1: awesome. right. You know, and I think one of the challenges that I'm seeing, personally experiencing as well, as I've seen in others, is this feeling like you almost don't have permission to say you're not okay because you will always be able to point to people who have it worse than you. We can point to countries that have it worse than us. We can say, you know, yes, I live in Bondi and therefore and I have a great view, therefore I shouldn't complain. Yes. Um, or I live in Sydney and I, I've had, this is my second lockdown, you've had five. But actually... I'm still experiencing some hard times or loss relative to my set of experiences. And even just feeling that permission, because I think that's part of the problem as well. Feeling like, how ungrateful do I sound if I don't, if I say something out loud? You know, I, I am surrounded by others. So I think permission to say you're not okay regardless of your circumstances obviously we can always when we speak to the opportunity and the problem solving we'll be able to point to those other things and look at what I do have etc but I think that first place of being okay taking the pressure off and saying look I actually am not okay today and maybe I'll be yeah. okay, okay tomorrow, but I think that is an important thing. And it makes me also think, I don't know, I should, probably shouldn't share the story, but when you were talking here, I was thinking about that 90s um, movie, White Man Can't Jump, you know. Yeah. And I said that. But the scene where the girlfriend was like, I'm really thirsty, and Woody Harrelson goes, oh, I'll get you some water. And she's like, no, I need you to identify with my thirst. <laughs> and he's like... if you're thirsty i'll get you some water and she's like not hearing me i want you to feel my thirst he's like why would i feel but it stays in my mind it's a silly example but sometimes you want people to acknowledge that you do feel thirsty and it's okay and i'm sure we can get some water in a moment but right now it's important
0: (laughs) i remember uh, i remember going to see that movie at uh, at westfield shopping town in doncaster when i was in grade six um it was a bit of an I don't know that movie to me at age 12 but <laughs> I, I remember that scene so clear and even, even as a 12 year old I kind of at a very basic level understood like people need to be validated <laughs> <laughs> there
1: you go now I uh let's bring it back to um you know your profession Hugh uh, I wonder if you can start by giving us an overview of the journey to 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 date really and you know a potted history of how you found yourself doing what you're doing and, you know, what led nice. you to devote your career to helping people find happiness and resilience?
0: So I'm in the process right now of writing my second book and it's been really interesting because I'm trying to put this stuff forward in a, in a new way And because I feel like a lot of people have heard me speak before and I don't want them to feel like they're getting, you know, I want them to hear something new. Yeah. It's just great timing to ask that question because I'm what I, what I used to say when I answered that question was in 2008 I went to India and I... Yeah volunteered there and I met uh, this group of kids who were sleeping on a dirt floor and no running water, no electricity. They're so happy. And I wanted to understand what they did to be happy because um, my sister was struggling with a mental illness and I wanted to help her. That's what the first book said. But I, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I unravel it with my psychologist. And by the way, I talk about my psychologist a lot and I do that deliberately. I've never had a mental illness in my life. I'm so lucky. And because of that, I never saw a psychologist because I thought that's for people who are who have a mental illness. It's for all of us, like a counselor, a therapist, someone you can chat to about your life. It's just, is absolutely life-changing. So i, I just putting it out there to everyone listening. But I'm unraveling this with my psychologist at the moment. And, and the more I think about it, I realize that it started with my sister's mental illness when she was 14 years old and her diagnosis of anorexia. But I remember coming home from the hospital with my, family after visiting my sister, I just remember this figure of my dad just sort of hunched over the, the kitchen sink doing the dishes and he was in tears. Mm-hmm. It was like, I was 17. It's the second time I've ever seen him cry in my life. And I remember thinking, gosh, we're not a happy family. And we have been for a long time, but we're not anymore. Mm-hmm. And I desperately wanted to know what I could do to help Mum and dad feel happy again. And my little brother, Josh, but I just had no idea. Um, I had no idea what to do, but I, I wanted to know I just, I was fascinated by the question, what is it that makes people happy? And mm-hmm. I, for me, felt like I could tell them really funny stories and recount ridiculous things from my day to make them laugh over the dinner table. And I often tried to do that to distract yeah. them from the fact my sister wasn't eating. So I think at a young age, I learned the art of storytelling in a desperate mm-hmm. attempt to try and distract mum and dad from their misery. Mm-hmm. Um, but then professionally, I went into teaching and and was very focused on pastoral care because of my sister's journey, I guess. But yeah, it wasn't till I was living in 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 the right in the thick of the Himalayas that I discovered this community who practiced gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness every single day. And and I remember thinking, gosh, why why don't we do this properly in Australia? And came back to Melbourne and then put together a school program, basically, which was very well wasn't very popular for three or four years and now it's in I think it's we've got 300,000 kids around the country practicing this stuff every single day which is really exciting for us but it's also exciting for these school communities that have a framework that I guess teaches kids things they can do every single day to help them to feel happier to improve their mental health and Mm. And to cope better in a challenging time, so gratitude, very simply, being the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have, because we really kind of struggle with that in Australia. And I am stereotyping here, but I see it. A lot, I do a lot of work in corporate organisations, and mm-hmm. I feel like the more privileged we are, or the more busy we are, or even the wealthier we are, the more we struggle with the concept of gratitude, which is just. We just find it so hard. Gratitude is when you pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have. And, and we struggle with that. Like, yeah, this if, if and then model of happiness. If I buy this, then I feel happy. Yes. If I, if I buy this house, if I buy this car, if I get this promotion, then i feel happy. None of that stuff works. It'll work momentarily for a little bit. But then, you know, yeah, everyone, everyone listening to this will have had a promotion at some point that you desperately mm-hmm. wanted. How long does that make you happy for? You know, is it, is it like six months or a year until you see a better job and you think, I need that job, and then it's you don't get it? It's how short-lived it is,
1: isn't it? Then yeah. And
0: I, just I, reckon I reckon I'm being very generous saying six months to a year. I think,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, for a lot of people, I remember it was back in like, when was it, probably about well, 11 years ago I got a job and um, I was like, oh, this is it. I've made it. I'm so happy here. And I think it was three months later, someone who had a similar job to me got a promotion with something else or everything. I, I need to get what that person's got. Then I feel happy. How have they got that and not me? And I became very miserable because I was so focused on someone else. Like it was someone else getting a promotion. There's so many have been.
1: conditionals, don't
0: we? Yeah, totally. We are so many conditions on our happiness. So that's the gratitude piece that they do so well. Uh, empathy, everyone knows that's when you feel what someone else feels and we've got to get better at that if we want this world to heal right now. Um, And in mindfulness, it's a complicated one, but if I could simplify it for this chat, I'd say it's just the ability to be wherever you are and just to be aware of what's happening as it's happening in your mind, around you, all that kind of stuff. And and that's what those people did so very well, and that's what I put into a a program. So that's a long answer to your question, sorry, Janelle, but that's kind of... I think
1: that it's quite pithy, actually, because there's a lot in there. I actually wanted to stay on empathy for a moment. How do you teach empathy?
0: Well, the really exciting thing from our – so Melbourne University did a a three-year evaluation of our program because we just wanted to know, is what we're doing actually having an impact at all? And if not, what what are we doing wrong? And interestingly enough, they measured the impact of the three in the schools and they found that with over 4,000 kids, we we couldn't measure a change in empathy levels because their empathy levels were so high before we even started (laughs) – like before we went to the school, the empathy levels amongst the kids were so high, we couldn't track any changes. Like they all peaked it. Like they all knew what it was. They all reported to practice it all the time. They reported to think about it all the time, which is really, really nice. So that was interesting finding. But the way we, we hope to continue teaching it is um, a little bit different to the way everyone else does it. One of the main ways we do it is we teach emotional literacy, which is the ability to label the emotion you're experiencing as you're experiencing it. Because a lot of empathy is about looking at someone else and going, how does that person feel right now? But if we can't identify our own emotion, like if we can't work out how we're feeling at any moment, like a lot of people can't, especially men, we got no chance of identifying someone else's emotion. So from a young age, it's about getting a child to say, right now, I feel this emotion. And then the next step is, this is why. And there's some beautiful resources out there, whether they're just looking at emoji charts, and it's getting kids to look at them and say, "I think today I feel this, or right now I feel this." And okay, so why do you feel that? And
1: that's men- a really that's a really powerful thing to be teaching in young kids' emotional literacy. Actually, I'm doing work with my team at the moment on that at adult level. We're calling it subject-object theory. Where, you know, when you are experiencing something, and then you stop and you pause and you look back on that and go, "How was I? How did I show up in that? What was I feeling? What was happening to me?" That's that's a really advanced or actually find it's quite hard for us as adults. So it's an amazing thing. Maybe it's easier for kids if it is getting them to name it earlier, which is fantastic.
0: I think so, yeah. I, I did a lot of work in uh, juvenile detention. Um I'd go in there and work with these boys individually and um I was woefully underqualified at the time, but I still found myself in this position where I would sit and chat with these boys. And um, I remember this huge fight at one of the facilities and I had to go in there and... When it all calmed down, I wouldn't be much good in the head of, of it. But I um, chatted to one of the boys after. I said, how do you feel, How are you feeling? And he said, shit. And I said, no, no, no. I want to know what emotion you're feeling. And he said, yeah, shit. And I said, no, that's not emotion. I need to know the emotion. And he said, I, I don't know. I just feel shit. And I said, okay. Really? I, I <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> and, I said, and, I, and I said, why do you feel shit? And he said, I don't know. I just do. Then I held up this, these cards and I flipped through those cards with the faces on them. And I said, when you see the face that you're feeling right now, point to it. And he finally saw this emoji and it had like the tears emoji, like looking really sad, and he said that one. And on the back it said lonely. I said, oh, it says here you feel lonely. Is that how you feel? And he said, yeah. And I said, go on, say it. And he said, I feel lonely. And I said, why? He told me in an instant. He said, I feel lonely because mum and dad don't come to visit. I feel lonely because my mates from school don't visit me anymore and I don't have any friends here. So what he'd done was, because he could tell me the emotion, he could identify, he was able to identify the problem, and then we could problem solve it together. Mm. So that's a big one for us as adults as well. Like when we're not feeling good, we often just go, we don't articulate out loud, but we just sort of to ourselves, "Geez, I feel shit at the moment." But maybe it's a better thing to go, "I feel hurt, or I feel jealous, or I feel lonely, or I feel whatever it is," and then work out why do I feel like that. And then when you work that out, go, okay, well, what am I going to do about this now? Um, and I think that is, yeah, to to me, that's that's a really healthy way to approach things. And it's a lot of us don't do that because we're too proud or too busy
1: and also properly. I think the times have changed so if I think about emojis and short form text you know everything's shorter and shorter and shorter you just do a sad face or you do a angry face or your head's blowing off emoji or you're like yes. lol or, yeah, yeah. you know that sort of thing we've now taken shortcuts to expressing emotions and I think that gives us an out from having to sit in it and name it and then go into interrogating, well, why do I feel that way? Because to say just to put a you know, a sad face or a thumbs down rather than a I feel alone, which is a much more powerful word, which invites a conversation around let's, let's talk about that. What why? Really different, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. I and I, I like that. I, I think one of the things we have to get better at, unfortunately, is adapting to technology. And I, I wish a a lot of it could go away, social media especially, but Knowing it's here to stay, I think a helpful thing to do to people, and I love you brought that up, is to say when you next time you use someone says how are you going, or you, you write something and then you use an emoji, actually go, Well what well what, what what's the emotion attached to this face and actually say it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I I'm gonna go into my phone right now and you know how when you go to use an emoji it tells you your, your recent one. I can I already know what it'll be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the it's the hand you know the hand on the face one, like you just Yeah, like, face yeah, palm. Yeah, that like I'm such an idiot. Like yeah, that's that face face palms. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, totally. I sort of feel like that's an emoji we should all be using a little bit more as far as it's it's a very vulnerable, like uh, humble. I'm going off the topic here, but I, I really like that one. I love that as far as like, I don't have all the answers. I'm a bit of an idiot. What, what do you think? It's like, it's really powerful to be, to me, that's like, yeah, it's very humble. I'm interested, not interesting. I want to be interested rather than interesting right now. I think that's a nice place for us all to start.
1: I love that, be interested rather than interesting. And actually one of the other um, paths to avoiding narrating um, how you feel, I think, is using your calendar as the proxy for how you feel. So we answer with I'm busy, how are you, flat out, yeah, me too, flat chat, that's not how you are. That's the state of no. of your calendar. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. we've got to stop saying that. I totally agree. It's not an answer to how you're going.
1: <laughs> Philosophically, I, I'm i interested in understanding how good or realistic it is to pursue happiness all the time. I I used to live in the US um, for a number of years. I was always surrounded by ads in the subways and on billboards that were constantly, you know, suggesting antidepressants for unhappiness or, you know, feeling sad, try this. You know, it always struck me that trying to numb sadness rather than allow yourself to feel those things could itself be problematic And sadness is a legitimate part of a spectrum of emotions that we, you know, as humans feel. And we never question being happy or excited when it occurs, but we always question and try to avoid sadness or feeling flat or down when it occurs. So just philosophically, this pursuit of happiness how do you temper that, I guess, on a spectrum of emotions
0: that we... Well, the reason you see it everywhere is because it's become this huge business. Certainly, people will sell a lot of products saying, you do this, you'll be happy. It's completely unrealistic and untarable to say that you should be aiming to be happy. It's just just, just not the case. We're not all happy all the time. Life is full of ups and downs and negative emotions are good for, for... Like the healthiest ratio of positive to negative emotion is is three to one. Like we're meant to have one negative emotion for every three positive emotions because that it keeps us grounded so we're not flying around in the wind aimlessly. Like it's when you feel lonely that is a sign that you need to. That's your body giving you, or your brain giving you a sign. You need to go and make a connection. Like you need to connect. Unfortunately, so many of us will grab our phone when we feel lonely and get lost in Instagram. But we loneliness is a sign we should be connecting. You know, you you feel bored. It's, that, that's a negative emotion, but it's it's a good one because it inspires you to be creative. Like creative to kill the boredom. Again, so many of us now will just gravitate to our phones when we feel when we feel that boredom. But we we should be creative in that in that moment. I'll put it this way: when I'm asked what I want for my kids. The, aim, the answer is not, I want them to be happy, which it used to be when they were very young. My answer now is, I hope that they know what they can do when they're struggling to pick themselves back up again.
1: Mm, that's really powerful. I want to move on to your connection with sport. You're involved in so many sporting clubs and so many athletes, which um, you know makes sense. Resilience is at the heart of becoming a better athlete or team. Can you share a story or an anecdote of your work that? that you can point to this, has made a real difference to a player or a club, something that sort of stands out in your mind and go, yeah, that's that's what it looks like.
0: Of all the clubs I've worked with, and it has been a lot, I thought the club I've had the biggest impact with is actually Port Adelaide Football Club in the AFL.
1: Mm.
0: And funnily enough, it wasn't doing the gratitude, empathy, mindfulness stuff. It was giving those players and those coaches an opportunity to get up and talk about what their life is really like, like when you take their armour off and you stop pretending that everything's great. Mm-hmm. And you actually be real and show up from a place of true, like this is my this is my story, this is how I'm going right now. On a pre-season camp, there was an opportunity for players, it wasn't compulsory, but if you feel comfortable, um, talk about your 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 journey or how you're going right now. And some of the stories that came out. Stuff really stuff that the players had worked so hard at keeping locked away so no one could see. But talking about things like people struggling with depression or parents relationship breaking down or maybe it's a – I mean, Travis Boke's probably an athlete I've, I've had a lot to do with ongoing. He plays his 300th game on um, on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, he spoke about the impact of his dad passing away when he was 16 years old and the impact it's had on him as a person, as a footballer, the good stuff but also the stuff he struggles with because of it. And it was so connecting for the group to mm-hmm. hear a perfect – I mean, Travis Boke's the most perfect-looking person I've ever seen. He's got <laughs> – you look at him and go <laughs> – I can hear a real man crush happening here. When, when I'm, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I get distracted when I'm, I get distracted <laughs> by his beauty when he's talking. I find myself getting very distracted with what he looks like. Just going, is there, There's no more beautiful man on the planet. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I don't take any of the credit for for his development. Like he has done all the hard work on this stuff, and he's sought out some great mentors and some great people to have conversations with. I've, he's had some, you know. He has fully embraced the the concept of being open and being vulnerable and talking about who he really is and showing up from a place of true authenticity, like this is me, not this is who I think the world wants me to be or this is what I should look like as an AFL footballer. It's just like this is, I'm imperfect, I'm full of struggle, but I'm very worthy is kind of the way he shows up every day. And Yeah, he's a great man. but but just that club, like, When I first started presenting there, I thought, I've done every NRL club, most of the AFL clubs, and I turned up to Port Adelaide, did my first presentation. And if I'm being honest, I thought, oh, they didn't like that at all. That didn't go Mm -hmm. too well. And then they said, no, no, this is just very new for us, the stuff you spoke about. it just We're all on board, but you didn't get the usual response because it's very foreign what you're doing, I suppose. And then um, did a year with them and they said, what's next? And I said, well, let's look at opening the boys up a bit more. I think they need to be a bit more honest with who they are and who they want to be and owning their story, all that kind of stuff, and they and so people shared their story and, and um in a very safe environment and and the impact it's had on the group. I think, from my point of view, from an outsider, is it's been quite profound and just when you hear them interviewed after games now. They don't talk about how well they played. They just talk about the connection they have as a group and how much they love each other and um, them in the Melbourne storm. But, yeah, the answer is Port Adelaide and Travis (laughs) Poke.
1: Very good. I'm just sort of thinking you use the word club and I've asked you about teams and and clubs, et cetera, and I can see how these techniques are fantastic and powerful working in those kinds of groups. How do people find that kind of strength and resilience in times when they're alone?
0: Do you mean like? physically alone as far as like... Yeah, people
1: maybe, who aren't in clubs, so coming out of a teaming uh, situation right. yeah, and you're yeah, at yeah, home okay. and you're trying to be more resilient. How, what what do you say to those people who are listening and saying, okay, well, great, but I live by myself and I've been isolated. What, what do I do?
0: Everyone, I reckon, is lucky enough to have one, maybe two people in their life that they know they can just be honest with how they're going and talk to someone about. I'll identify who that person is or who those people are and and don't, you don't need to say to them, hey, can I chat to you about something? I'm going through something difficult. Just if you're in lockdown, say let's have a wine over Zoom or a coffee over Zoom or, or a phone call or go for a walk or whatever it is. Yeah, often people ask when you first catch up with them. like, And you need to warm up, I think, a lot of the time. But you, someone goes, hey, mate, how are you going? You can't go. Struggling. I'm really in a bad place. But... Yeah when the conversation gets going they say something like how are things at work or what's going at work then mm-hmm. once you've warmed up a bit then you can say i'm really battling with this project in fact i'm actually battling with x y and z whatever it is mm-hmm. so you sort of allow yourself to up into the conversation and then you've chosen that person for a reason and just watch what happens like it's it is so connecting it is mm-hmm. so connecting when you when you own your story and the only thing i'd say is it, for everyone who who's interested in this stuff Ben Crow, who's my mentor, and he's he's mentoring Ash Barty. Ash Barty, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and how on earth he's ended up as my mentor, I'll never understand. But uh, he does a lot of space here. He's got an app called Mojo Crow, and he has this formula or this process you can go through where you can work through this stuff yourself so you can really understand your story first before you blurt it out to someone else if you want to get a bit more... And that's
1: really powerful. He's doing some work with yeah. us as well and um, he speaks yeah. about FUPO as well, fear of other people's opinions. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah has yeah. been powerful too.
0: He's a beautiful presenter.
1: Well, Hugh, you, as you know, this is a podcast about change. It's all about dealing with change and driving change. Based on your life experiences and your business mission and the work you've been doing, what are the lessons that you've learned when it comes to managing change and also leading it?
0: I, well, the first thing I've learned is that people are very, very people are very. I mean, I'm not saying anything new here. Everyone knows this, but I think people are very resistant to change. If as a leader, navigating change is all about being vulnerable in the whole process yourself, like explaining your hesitations and your fears towards it. But then, I, human beings love stories. Like we, we, mm. we, we just love stories. We're captivated by stories. I, I've realized the podcast that I listen to, the the story, the the um, books that I read, the the, the, the they're natural storytellers.
1: Mm.
0: Telling a story rather than saying, here's a process of change we're going through. Mm. I mean, that's all I do when I do my presentations. What I'm suggesting is a pretty big change for a lot of people. But I don't say, um, I think we need to go through a change personally Mm. and emotionally. I just tell a whole lot of stories. Uh, I tell stories, I tell stories. And by the end of it, I think people go, oh, he's suggesting I'd I'd make some change in my life. (laughs) But I do feel like we need to get better at telling stories in order to drive change as opposed to saying we're about to go through a big change, we're about to go through a big structural change and a big process of change and this might be scary and this might be hard but instead, like, here's this story um, and here's here's some things we're going to do off the back of it. I think we can frame those things a little bit better and stories, as far as I'm concerned, is the way to go. I
1: agree. Now, changing tack for a moment to your podcast, The Imperfects, and I know you've teamed up with um, comedian Ryan Shelton in that. Tell us about the podcast why did you do it? Why Why do you have it in place? Who's it for? And what are the, some of the um, challenges and delights on focusing on imperfections?
0: Yeah. Um, I could talk about this for a long time. Um, <laughs> for a long time, people get saying to me, why don't you have a podcast? And I just felt like I knew it made sense, but I didn't really have a new idea to bring to the well-being space. So I felt like a lot of people were there's already some great stuff, well-being podcasts happening. But I, for a long time, have been a very big fan of uh, Ryan Shelton. He's, mm. as far as my humour and my wife's humour as well, like he's the person we both, in fact, on one of our first dates, we talked about how much we love Ryan Shelton. I didn't know him at that point when I first <laughs> met my wife. But fast forward a year, my wife and I have been together for a year and I was in a cafe in Collingwood in Melbourne and I saw Ryan. I just wanted to tell him how happy his stuff makes me and how...
1: Oh, he would love that.
0: Yeah, well, I... I Stupid! I went and sat right next to him, um, and I, I was, <laughs> I was sitting next to him in a cafe, just pretending I was working. And I was like, "Oh, Homer!" I said, oh, "Hey, just a, I just sorry I didn't see you there, but I just want to let you know that um, when I need to feel happy, I watch your videos." And yeah, that's I don't want to annoy you, but I just want to let you know that. And that's all it was about. And he's such a friendly, lovely person. He said, "Oh, what do you do?" And I said, well, I wouldn't usually answer your question because I feel like it's boring. But but I just I go and speak at schools about happiness and I need to feel happy before I do those talks and I watch your stuff that makes me feel happy before I go to school if I'm not feeling good. And he said, oh, that's really amazing. And we sort of followed each other on social media after that. I, mean, I actually put up a photo, a photo on Instagram of me and him when we first met. And I said, oh, I'd love to take a photo so I can show my wife. That was a lie. I just wanted to have a photo with him. Like I felt like it was too weird to say that to him. But we had a lovely photo together and – um and then I never, I didn't hear from him. Obviously, why would? And then four years later, three years later, I got a message on Instagram which said, "Hey, Matt Queipo, catch up." I couldn't believe it. I was oh, like, "Did you do
1: a little
0: happy dance when you got that?" Yeah, pretty, oh, more than that. I was like, <laughs> I, was, I couldn't believe it. And and then we caught up, and he just said, oh, "I'm just going through a few things right now, and i um, He was struggling with a few things around professionally. Like he wanted to, to have his own TV show. He wanted to be voted the funniest man in Australia. He and he thought if I do that. If I get that, then I'll be happy. And we talked a lot about how that's not where joy comes from and he's realized that. And then he talked about jealousy he was feeling for his best mate, mm-hmm. Hamish Blake, and how he actually couldn't watch Hamish Blake's stuff, his best mate since they were like 15, because it made him jealous and and feel unhappy. And and um, I remember saying to him, you need to tell Hamish this. And he said, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, you need to tell him. You need to tell Hamish. He also said, I, I sort of felt like the only reason I get opportunities to do stuff is because I'm Hamish Blake's best mate. And then the only reason I got to work on his shows is because he just feels sorry for me. And he told himself these really unfair stories. And I went home after that catch-up and he was quite emotional when he told me. I went home and thought, gosh, that was so good for me to hear that. Like someone like Ryan Shelton struggles with that stuff. And I thought, actually, then I remember thinking to myself, I wish everyone heard that conversation. And then I thought, well, that's an idea for a podcast. What what, What if we talk to people who are outwardly extremely happy, successful people. Like you look at their life and go, I wish my life was like theirs. Mm -hmm. Just to learn that everyone struggles with stuff. Um, And I told Ryan that and said, would you like to do it with me? He said, I'll help produce it, but I'm not going to be on it. And I said, why not? He said, I'm not qualified. And I said, no, but it needs you to make it accessible. You'll be really funny. People will listen for the humor but they'll get good lessons in as well. It took me literally six months to convince him that it was a good idea. And then when he said, yeah, I'm in, I said, right, well, let's do an episode next week. And he said, no, 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 we need to be a bit more. And I learned from him a lot about professionalism. It took us another <laughs> year to do it. It was another year of planning till we then actually did our first episode with Missy Higgins, like literally a year later when we were, when he was totally happy that, yeah, this is the, you know. Well, I mean, to round the story out with Ryan, he, he eventually caught up with Homish.
1: We should round it out because I absolutely love Hamish and I know how this story ends. So do 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 round out how that story finished.
0: Yeah, well, he caught up with Hamish and said to him, um, he told him, he said, I, I have felt very jealous about your success. I've felt like I haven't been able to enjoy it properly and I, I'm worried the only reason that you ever have me on the show is because you feel sorry for me and that the only opportunities I get in life are because I'm friends with you and that's been really hard for me to sort of, and Hamish, I, I, I don't know the details of what Hamish said, but I know that whatever Hamish said made him realize that whenever he works with him, it's because he's so unbelievably talented that he wants him to do part of it because he knows it makes his stuff funnier. Mm. And that the reason he gets opportunities in life is because he's naturally extremely funny. Um, and people who have him on their shows or give him opportunities, their shows mean a lot. They wouldn't do it just because they feel sorry for someone. And straight away, Ryan was like, of course that's true. Like, of course, Mm. that's like, why have I told myself this story for 15 years? And so, um, yeah, I remember getting a lovely message from Hamish. I think it was Christmas Eve a few years ago, just saying, mate, what a Christmas present. You've helped me and Ryan take our relationship to the next level and it was just a lovely way to round it oh, out. Oh, beautiful, you know, these people beautiful
1: are, story. Yeah. Oh, love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I know, you know, humour is an important part of the way that you talk to kids about mental health. You know, I know that you a lot of, you know, what you do, you've got them laughing way before you even start speaking about mental health or naming that. Uh, you know, I know you've told us a story about how the Ryan thing came about, but I wonder whether there was subconsciously there a recognition of the role that humour, or maybe more consciously than that, because you said he brings you joy, but recognizing Ryan's element of humour in in such a serious topic of mental health and um, resilience.
0: Uh humor's every like I, I grew up in sporting clubs and your currency in sporting clubs is storytelling and and humour and humor, and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I, I I spend the first fifteen minutes, or maybe not fifteen minutes, I spend the first five minutes of every student presentation making the kids laugh because mm-hmm. it's it's the most powerful form of engagement as far as I'm concerned. The best public speakers in the world. You know, I, people say to me, Oh, you should look at you should watch this TED talk, watch this TED talk. No, don't watch TED Talks. Watch comedians. Watch really good comedians they are the best communicators of a message because when they, you know, you listen to a TED Talk, you get to the end of it, like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's, well, like, what's the next thing I'm going to watch? It's even the best TED Talks in the world, I, I'm i ready for them to finish by the time it it gets, you know. <laughs> um, comedians, good comedians, you're shattered when they finish. I've seen Billy Connolly. I mean, Billy Connolly is my hero in, in everything that I do. I, I adore Billy Connolly. I, I think mm-hmm. he is the benchmark of, I mean, you, if, if anyone wants to learn about engagement or, or public speaking, if you Google Billy Connolly, Connolly, old lady on a bus, he tells a story (laughs) that goes for 10, I think it's about 10 or 12 minutes. He gets sidetracked as he does many times throughout. But there's no better way of communicating something to people than making them laugh and doing it through a story. And I think Billy Connolly is the best at that. But I I just even, as I'm thinking right now, I'm just having a realisation, which I'll talk to my psychologist about (laughs) we 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 mum and dad were obsessed with Billy Connolly growing up and they would we, we had all these, mm. these video video cassettes and we'd often we'd often watch him and I would we'd all be on the couch and I'd often be watching Mum and Dad watching him. I'd be watching how much they laugh mm. at Billy Connolly and I remember thinking right now mum and dad are very happy and yeah. I I um I just think now like I, I I actually learned that storytelling also for the power of it, and this power of humor from Billy Connolly. Yeah. And I, I was in I did a finished a show in Hobart last week and this is a nice way of rounding this out but I a a guy came up to me afterwards he would be in his 50s maybe 60s and he said oh this won't mean anything to you at all but um I felt like I was watching a young Billy Connolly on stage tonight and I said mate you actually and I think not in that he thought I was extremely funny just in that I go from one story to the next and I forget to finish the story then I go back to another one and that to me was like you have no idea how much that means because I think Billy Connolly was a huge influence on the way I communicate I'm not saying I'm as funny as Billy. That would be a ridiculous claim, but I, I, I'm clearly not. But I, I, I learnt the power of humour and storytelling through him. And that's if you listen to our podcast, which you, I know you do, but if other people mm-hmm. listen to our podcast, I tell stories, Ryan's very funny, um, and that's kind of, I guess, how the podcast works and hopefully it gives people some – it's accessible and people are able to have some breakthrough moments in their own lives.
1: I think when I reflect on how you started this conversation and you talked about you know your family and you said there was sadness in your family and you thought, yeah, can I make them laugh to distract them, it's obviously something that you sort of embodied right and understood intuitively. Words came later to narrate it like now even as you're sort of getting stronger, uh, sort of um, evolving the narrative around how and why, but it, clearly it's something that you've understood right from an early age in your family experience of how do I bring humour and story to this? So um, the words have come later, but I think the the intuition was there from from the get-go and I do listen to your podcasts and in Perfect you you have the vulnerability house episodes, which is a play on the tea part of vulnerability, grab yourself a cup of vulnerability, um, which has been really interesting. There are some really confronting questions. Maybe a quick one to finish this is, What has surprised you in, you know, one of those episodes around vulnerability? You've obviously understood the power of vulnerability. Has there been any surprises in doing those interspersed episodes?
0: My my little brother, Josh, who started off, he's on the podcast now with a microphone. He started off, as you know, just as our producer in the background and he kept having really insightful contributions throughout and then we said we should give him a microphone just in case. And then he then had to do it. Well, I didn't have to, he said, I'll do an episode of vulnerability. And we said, you don't have to. And he said, no, no, I I want to talk about it. And so he told this story that I'd never heard about before Mm -hmm. about, about how he stopped writing song lyrics when he was 22, because someone found his book that he used to jot notes in and they all took the piss out of it. And he was, he stopped writing at that very moment. And, um, I, I didn't know everyone could do vulnerability, but what my brother did was he just told a story from his life. That was a very vulnerable story, and it was incredible. I mean, it inspired Missy Higgins of all people to reach out out to us to say, "I want to do this again." Wow. I had a similar experience, and it's just so it's so connecting, and anyone can do it. I have found he's uh, to me that was my favorite episode we've ever done. That's what surprised me most right? is that anyone can do it. Really,
1: one of the takeaways for me was, I mean, you were half finishing his sentence and saying, "I can tell all your stories. I know all your stories," and. Then you tell the story and you were like, whoa, I didn't know that or I didn't know it had that impact on you. And the takeaway for me was we should never be so familiar with people that we feel like we already know their stories. Back to your great point earlier around be interested over interesting to me, hmm. that's where you start to learn and unpack this. So I thought, you know, I just wanted to share that with you as someone I was listening to. I was like, wow, even his brother was surprised and you guys are obviously incredibly close. And for me, it made me think, oh, my God, what else have I not asked my brother or sister and have I assumed away so much because we've grown up together our whole lives, you know?
0: Yeah, well, my, my brother and I, like, he's my best friend and I, I thought we couldn't get much closer, but this podcast sharing his experiences, like a – when I was in the thick of like really struggling, it was about a month ago and said I'm not going too well just to bring it back to the start of our chat. He didn't know that and I told him in that chat and he has just been so attentive to me the last couple of months he's one of the big reasons I'm feeling much better. So, yeah, it's incredible the power of vulnerability it really is.
1: The last three, three fast questions on change to finish the podcast. Hugh, I always finish with a fast three and one of the fast three is if you were going to put a quote up on a billboard, what would it be?
0: It's at the end of a movie. um, Now I've blanked on the movie name as well. (laughs) Jojo Rabbit is the movie and the quote is, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. No feeling is final. And I think remember that right now. No no feeling is final. What That's are you it.
1: reading, watching or listening to right now?
0: I am reading uh, Becky Lucas's book. Becky Lucas's book is called Acknowledgements. I'm actually reading it for the second time. It's so good. Mm. A very good comedian, gifted comedian. But I don't know where it's just come out. I don't know where you find her book is in, in the bookshop because it's, it's actually... An unbelievably good self-help book. She would never say that's what it is, but it is. It's also a very good, a great memoir to date, I guess. But I've learned so much from her book. It's really been really nice. So uh, Listening To, uh, my favorite podcast is one that I'm not even going to recommend because I think most people won't be interested in it, but it's called Shoe Geeks because I love running. And it's all about the shoes that people wear when they're running. And it's pro- I don't think it's got a huge audience because it's very niche, but that's what I'm listening to. <laughs> what am I watching I've just finished watching it for the second time. It's uh, Love on the Spectrum.
1: Oh, I love
0: that. Probably the best TV show I've watched in my life.
1: <laughs> I, I just love it. That brings me joy. Now, finally, what is your superpower? And this can be something that's additive to the world or an absolutely useless party trick. My
0: superpower is when someone says, what do you think the time is? And I haven't looked within an hour. I can almost always do it <laughs> within a minute. I'm so good at it. If I wake up, and uh, I just the second I wake up, I go, I think it's 10 past seven. It, it usually is. <laughs>
1: If that's the case, then I best wrap up this call because you would be very aware that we are well <laughs> of <the> time. <laughs> Thank you for for giving me the heads up about that. Um, I really, really have enjoyed the conversation, Hugh. I um, I always say that there's lots of takeaway. People take away different things from different conversations, but for me, I have really it's been super helpful to be reminded of. Um, permission to say I'm not okay and the importance of validating it when people do do that before we try to rush to solutions. Um, I, I love the reminders about gem and gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, paying attention to what we've got, not what we don't have. I loved the conversation about emotional literacy and being able to name your emotions um, and curiosity, you know, being interested over being interesting. And I think, um, you know, the power of owning your story, the power of leaning into storytelling for driving change and the power of humour in driving change as well. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation here. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Uh, Janelle, it's an absolute pleasure. And, and congratulations on all the stuff you're doing um, on all the all the work you're doing. I think it's incredibly impressive.
1: Oh, thanks, Hugh. The Change Happens Podcast from EY, a
0: conversation on leading through change. Discover more where you get your podcasts.